History of England, Chapter 12, Part 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Accession of James the Second by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter Twelve, Part Seven. And now Londonderry was left destitute of all military and of all civil government. No man in the town had a right to command any other. The defenses were weak. The provisions were scanty. An incensed tyranny and a great army were at the gates. But within was that which has often, in desperate extremities, retrieved the fallen fortunes of nations. Betrayed, deserted, disorganized, unprovided with resources, begirt with enemies, the noble city was still no easy conquest. Whatever an engineer might think of the strength of the ramparts, all that was most intelligent, most courageous, most high-spirited, among the Englishry of Leinster and of northern Ulster was crowded behind them. The number of men capable of bearing arms within the walls was seven thousand, and the whole world could not have furnished seven thousand men better qualified to meet a terrible emergency with clear judgment, dauntless valor, and a stubborn patience. They were all zealous Protestants, and the Protestantism of the majority was tinged with Puritanism. They had much in common with that sober, resolute, and God-fearing class out of which Cromwell had formed his unconquerable army. But the peculiar situation in which they had been placed had developed in them some qualities which, in the mother country, might possibly have remained latent. The English inhabitants of Ireland were an aristocratic caste, which had been enabled by superior civilization, by close union, by sleepless vigilance, by cool intrepidity, to keep in subjection a numerous and hostile population. Almost every one of them had been in some measure trained both to military and to political functions. Almost every one was familiar with the use of arms and was accustomed to bear a part in the administration of justice. It was remarked by contemporary writers that the colonists had something of the Castilian haughtiness of manner, though none of the Castilian indolence that they spoke English with remarkable purity and correctness, and that they were, both as militiamen and as jurymen, superior to their kindred in the mother country. In all ages, men situated as the Anglo-Saxons in Ireland were situated have had peculiar vices and peculiar virtues, the vices and virtues of masters as opposed to the vices and virtues of slaves. The member of a dominant race is, in his dealings with the subject race, 
seldom indeed fraudulent. For fraud is the resource of the weak, but imperious, insolent, and cruel. Towards his brethren, on the other hand, his conduct is generally just, kind, and even noble. His self-respect leads him to respect all who belong to his own order. His interest impels him to cultivate a good understanding with those whose prompt, strenuous, and courageous assistance may at any moment be necessary to preserve his property and life. It is a truth ever present to his mind that his own well-being depends on the ascendancy of the class to which he belongs. His very selfishness, therefore, is sublimed into public spirit, and this public spirit is stimulated to fierce enthusiasm by sympathy, by the desire of applause, and by the dread of infamy. For the only opinion which he values is the opinion of his fellows, and in their opinion devotion to the common cause is the most sacred of duties. The character thus formed has two aspects. Seen on one side, it must be regarded by every well-constituted mind with disapprobation. Seen on the other, it irresistibly exhorts applause. The Spartan, smiting and spurning the wretched helot, moves our disgust. But the same Spartan, calmly dressing his hair and uttering his concise jests on what he well knows to be his last day in the pass of Thermopylae, is not to be contemplated without admiration. To a superficial observer, it may seem strange that so much evil and so much good should be found together. But in truth, the good and the evil, which at first sight appear almost incompatible, are closely connected and have a common origin. It was because the Spartan had been taught to revere himself as one of a race of sovereigns, and to look down on all that was not Spartan as of an inferior species, that he had no fellow feeling for the miserable serfs who crouched before him, and that the thought of submitting to a foreign master, or of turning his back before an enemy, never, even in the last extremity, crossed his mind. Something of the same character, compounded of tyrant and hero, has been found in all nations which have domineered over more numerous nations. But it has nowhere in modern Europe shown itself so conspicuously as in Ireland. With what contempt, with what antipathy, the ruling minority in that country, long regarded the subject majority, may be best learned from the hateful laws which, within the memory of men still living, disgraced the Irish statute book. Those laws were at length annulled, but the spirit which had dictated them survived them. And even at this day, sometimes breaks out in excesses pernicious to the commonwealth and dishonorable to the Protestant religion. 
Nevertheless, it is impossible to deny the English colonists have had, with too many of the faults, all the noblest virtues of a sovereign caste. The faults have, as was natural, been most offensively exhibited in times of prosperity and security. The virtues have been most resplendent in times of distress and peril. And never were those virtues more singly displayed than by the defenders of Londonderry when their governor had abandoned them, and when the camp of their mortal enemy was pitched before their walls. No sooner had the first burst of the rage excited by the perfidy of Lundy spent itself than those whom he had betrayed proceeded with a gravity and prudence worthy of the most renowned senates to provide for the order and defense of the city. Two governors were elected, Baker and Walker. Baker took the chief military command. Walker's especial business was to preserve internal tranquility and to dole out supplies from the magazines. The inhabitants, capable of bearing arms, were distributed into eight regiments. Colonels, captains, and subordinate officers were appointed. In a few hours every man knew his post and was ready to repair to it as soon as the beat of the drum was heard. That machinery by which Oliver had, in the preceding generation, kept up among his soldiers so stern and so pertinacious an enthusiasm, was again employed with not less complete success. Preaching and praying occupied a large part of every day. Eighteen clergymen of the established church and seven or eight nonconformist ministers were within the walls. They all exerted themselves indefatigably to rouse and sustain the spirit of the people. Among themselves, there was for the time entire harmony. All disputes about church, government, postures, ceremonies were forgotten. The bishop, having found that his lectures on passive obedience were derided even by the Episcopalians, had withdrawn himself, first to Rappau and then to England, and was preaching in a chapel in London. On the other hand, a Scotch fanatic named Hewson, who had exhorted the Presbyterians not to ally themselves with such as refused to subscribe to the covenant, had sunk under the well-merited disgust and scorn of the whole Protestant community. The aspect of the cathedral was remarkable. Cannon were planted on the summit of the broad tower, which has since given place to a tower of different proportions. Ammunition was stored in the vaults. In the choir, the liturgy of the Anglican Church was read every morning. Every afternoon, the dissenters crowded to a simpler worship. James had waited twenty-four hours, expecting, as it should seem, the performance of Lundy's promises. And in twenty-four hours, 
the arrangements for the defense of Londonderry were complete. On the evening of the 19th of April, a trumpeteer came to the southern gate and asked whether the engagements into which the governor had entered would be fulfilled. The answer was that the men who guarded these walls had nothing to do with the governor's engagements and were determined to resist to the last. On the following day, a messenger of higher rank was sent. Claude Hamilton, Lord Strabane, one of the few Roman Catholic peers of Ireland. Murray, who had been appointed to the command of one of the eight regiments into which the garrison was distributed, advanced from the gate to meet the flag of truce, and a short conference was held. Strabane had been authorized to make large promises. The citizens should have a free pardon for all that was passed if they would submit to their lawful sovereign. Murray himself should have a colonel's commission and a thousand pounds in money. Quote, the men of Londonderry, end quote, answered Murray, quote, have done nothing that requires a pardon, and own no sovereign but King William and Queen Mary. It will not be safe for your lordship to stay longer, or to return on the same errand. Let me have the honor of seeing you through the lines. End quote. James had been assured and had fully expected that the city would yield as soon as it was known that he was before the walls. Finding himself mistaken, he broke loose from the control of Melfort and determined to return instantly to Dublin. Rosen accompanied the king. The direction of the siege was entrusted to Maumont. Richard Hamilton was second, and Pusignan third in command. The operations now commenced in earnest. The besiegers began by battering the town. It was soon on fire in several places. Roofs and upper stories of houses fell in and crushed the inmates. During a short time, the garrison, many of whom had never before seen the effect of a cannonade, seemed to be discomposed by the crash of chimneys and by the heaps of ruin mingled with disfigured corpses. But familiarity with danger and horror produced in a few hours the natural effect. The spirit of the people rose so high that their chiefs thought it safe to act on the offensive. On the 21st of April, a sally was made under the command of Murray. The Irish stood their ground resolutely, and a furious and bloody contest took place. Maumont, at the head of the body of cavalry, flew to the place where the fight was raging. He was struck in the head by a musket ball and fell a corpse. The besiegers lost several other officers and about two hundred men before the colonists could be driven in. Murray escaped with difficulty. His horse was killed under him, and he was beset by enemies. But he was able to defend himself till some of his friends made a rush from the gate to his rescue, with old Walker at their head. 
in consequence of the death of Maumont, Hamilton was once more commander of the Irish army. His exploits in that post did not raise his reputation. He was a fine gentleman and a brave soldier, but he had no pretensions to the character of a great general, and had never, in his life, seen a siege. Pusignan had more science and energy, but Pusignan survived Maumont little more than a fortnight. At four in the morning of the 6th of May, the garrison made another sally, took several flags, and killed many of the besiegers. Pusignan, fighting gallantly, was shot through the body. The wound was one which a skillful surgeon might have cured. But there was no such surgeon in the Irish camp, and the communication with Dublin was slow and irregular. The poor Frenchman died, complaining bitterly of the barbarous ignorance and negligence which had shortened his days. A medical man, who had been sent down express from the capital, arrived after the funeral. James, in consequence, as it should seem, of this disaster, established a daily post between Dublin Castle and Hamilton's headquarters. Even by this conveyance, letters did not travel very expeditiously, for the couriers went on foot, and, from fear, probably of the Einskelleners, took a circuitous route from military post to military post. May passed away, June arrived, and still Londonderry held out. There had been many sallies and skirmishes, with various success. But, on the whole, the advantage had been with the garrison. Several officers of note had been carried prisoners into the city, and two French banners, torn after hard fighting from the besiegers, had been hung as trophies in the chancel of the cathedral. It seemed that the siege must be turned into a blockade, but before the hope of reducing the town by main force was relinquished, it was determined to make a great effort. The point selected for assault was an outwork called Windmill Hill, which was not far from the southern gate. Religious stimulants were employed to animate the courage of the forlorn hope. Many volunteers bound themselves by oath to make their way into the works or to perish in the attempt. Captain Butler, son of the Lord Montgarret, undertook to lead the sworn men to the attack. On the walls, the colonists were drawn up in three ranks. The office of those who were behind was to load the muskets of those who were in front. The Irish came on boldly with a fearful uproar but after long and hard fighting were driven back. The women of Londonderry were seen amidst the thickest fire serving out water and ammunition to their husbands and brothers. In one place, where the wall was only seven feet high, Butler and some of his sworn men succeeded in reaching the top, but they were all killed or made prisoners. At length, after four hundred of the Irish had fallen, 
their chiefs ordered a retreat to be sounded. Nothing was left but to try the effect of hunger. It was known that the stock of food in the city was but slender. Indeed, it was thought strange that the supplies should have held out so long. Every precaution was now taken against the introduction of provisions. All the avenues leading to the city by land were closely guarded. On the south were encamped along the left bank of the foil the horsemen who had followed Lord Galmoy from the valley of the Barrow. Their chief was of all the Irish captains the most dreaded and most abhorred by the Protestants, for he had disciplined his men with rare skill and care, and many frightful stories were told of his barbarity and perfidy. Long lines of tents, occupied by the infantry of Butler and O'Neill, of Lord Slane and Lord Gormanstown, by Nugent's Westmeath men, by Eustance's Kildare men, and by Cavanaugh's Kerry men, extended northward till they again approached the waterside. The river was fringed with forts and batteries, which no vessel could pass without great peril. After some time, it was determined to make the security still more complete by throwing a barricade across the stream, about a mile and a half below the city. Several boats full of stones were sunk. A row of stakes was driven into the bottom of the river. Large pieces of fir wood, strongly bound together, formed a boom which was more than a quarter of a mile in length and which was firmly fastened to both shores by cables a foot thick. A huge stone to which the cable on the left bank was attached was removed many years later for the purpose of being polished and shaped into a column. But the intention was abandoned, and the rugged mass still lies not many yards from its original site amidst the shades which surround a pleasant country house named Boom Hall. Hard is the well from which the besiegers drank. A little further off is the burial ground where they laid their slain, and where, in our own time, the spade of the gardener has struck on many skulls and thigh bones at a short distance beneath the turf and flowers. While these things were passing in the north, James was holding his court in Dublin. On his return thither from Londonderry, he received intelligence that the French fleet, commanded by the Count of Chateau Renaud, had anchored in Bantry Bay, and had put on shore a large quantity of military stores and a supply of money. Herbert who had just been sent to those seas with an English squadron for the purpose of intercepting the communications between Brittany and Ireland, learned where the enemy lay and sailed into the bay with the intention of giving battle. But the wind was unfavorable to him. His force was greatly inferior to that which was opposed to him, 
and after some firing, which caused no serious loss to either side, he thought it prudent to stand out to sea, while the French retired into the recesses of the harbor. He steered for Skilly, where he expected to find reinforcements, and Chateau Renaud, content with the credit which he had acquired, and afraid of losing it, if he stayed, hastened back to Brest. Though earnestly entreated by James to come round to Dublin. Both sides claimed the victory. The Commons at Westminster absurdly passed a vote of thanks to Herbert. James, not less absurdly, ordered bonfires to be lighted and a Te Deum to be sung. But these marks of joy by no means satisfied a Vaux, whose national vanity was too strong even for his characteristic prudence and politeness. He complained that James was so unjust and ungrateful as to attribute the result of the late action to the reluctance with which the English seamen fought against their rightful king and their old commander, and that his majesty did not seem to be well pleased by being told that they were flying over the ocean, pursued by the triumphant French. Dover, too, was a bad Frenchman. He seemed to take no pleasure in the defeat of his countrymen, and had been heard to say that the affair in Bantry Bay did not deserve to be called a battle. On the day after the Te Deum had been sung at Dublin, for this indecisive skirmish, the Parliament convoked by James assembled. The number of temporal peers of Ireland when he arrived in that kingdom was about a hundred. Of these, only fourteen obeyed his summons. Of the fourteen, ten were Roman Catholics. By the reversing of old attainders, and by new creations, seventeen more lords all Roman Catholics were introduced into the upper house. The Protestant bishops of Meath, Ossory, Cork, Limerick, whether from a sincere conviction that they could not lawfully withhold their obedience even from a tyrant, or from a vain hope that the heart even of a tyrant might be softened by their patience, made their appearance in the midst of their mortal enemies. The House of Commons consisted almost exclusively of Irishmen and Papists. With the writs the returning officers had received from Tyrconnell letters naming the persons whom he wished to see elected. The largest constituent bodies in the kingdom were at this time very small for scarcely any but Roman Catholics dared to show their faces, and the Roman Catholic freeholders were then very few, not more, it is said, in some counties than ten or twelve. Even in the cities, so considerable as Cork, Limerick, and Galway, the number of persons who under the new charters were entitled to vote did not exceed twenty-four. About two hundred and fifty members took their seats, and of these only six 
were Protestants. The list of the names sufficiently indicates the religious and political temper of the assembly. Alone among the Irish parliaments of that age, this parliament was filled with Dermots and Gohagans, O'Neills and O'Donovans, MacMons, McNamaras, and McGillicuddies. The lead was taken by a few men whose abilities had been improved by the study of the law, or by experience acquired in foreign countries. The Attorney General, Sir Richard Nagel, who represented the county of Cork, was allowed, even by the Protestants, to be an acute and learned jurist. Francis Plowden, the Commissioner of Revenue, who sate for Banow and acted as Chief Minister of Finance, was an Englishman, and, as he had been a principal agent of the Order of Jesuits in money matters, must be supposed to have been an excellent man of business. Colonel Henry Luttrell, member for the county of Carlow, had served long in France, and had brought back to his native Ireland a sharpened intellect and polished manners, a flattering tongue, some skill in war, and much more skill in intrigue. His elder brother, Colonel Simon Luttrell, who was member for the county of Dublin and military governor of the capital, had also resided in France, and though inferior to Henry in parts and activity, made a highly distinguished figure among the adherents of James. The other member for the county of Dublin was Colonel Patrick Sarsfield. This gallant officer was regarded by the natives as one of themselves. For his ancestors on the paternal side, though originally English, were among those early colonists who were proverbially said to have become more Irish than Irishmen. His mother was of noble Celtic blood, and he was firmly attached to the old religion. He had inherited an estate of about two thousand a year, and was therefore one of the wealthiest Roman Catholics in the kingdom. His knowledge of courts and camps was such as few of his countrymen possessed. He had long borne a commission in the English lifeguards, had lived much about Whitehall, and had fought bravely under Monmouth on the continent and against Monmouth at Sedgemoor. He had, a Vox wrote, more personal influence than any man in Ireland, and was indeed a gentleman of eminent merit, brave, upright, honorable, careful of his men in quarters, and certain to be always found at their head in the day of battle. His intrepidity, his frankness, his boundless good nature, his stature, which far exceeded that of ordinary men, and the strength which he exerted in personal conflict, gained for him the affectionate admiration of the populace. It is remarkable that the Englishry generally respected him as a valiant, skillful, and generous enemy, and that, even in the most ribald farces, which were performed by Mountbanks in Smithfield, 
he was always accepted from the disgraceful imputations which it was then the fashion to throw on the Irish nation. But men like these were rare in the House of Commons which had met at Dublin. It was no reproach to the Irish nation, a nation which has since furnished its full proportion of eloquent and accomplished senators, to say that, of all the parliaments which have met in the British islands, Barebone's Parliament not excepted, the assembly convoked by James was the most efficient in all the qualities which a legislature should possess. The stern domination of a hostile caste had blighted the faculties of the Irish gentleman. If he was so fortunate as to have lands, he had generally passed his life on them, shooting, fishing, carousing, and making love among his vassals. If his estate had been confiscated, he had wandered about from bond to bond, and from cabin to cabin, levying small contributions, and living at the expense of other men. He had never sate in the House of Commons. He had never even taken an active part at an election. He had never been a magistrate, scarcely ever, had he been on a grand jury. He had therefore absolutely no experience of public affairs. The English squire of that age, though assuredly not a very profound or enlightened politician, was a statesman and philosopher when compared with the Roman Catholic squire of Munster or Connaught. The parliaments of Ireland had then no fixed place of assembling. Indeed, they met so seldom and broke up so speedily that it would hardly have been worth while to build and furnish a palace for their special use. It was not until the Hanoverian dynasty had been long on the throne that a senate house, which sustains a comparison with the finest compositions of Inigo Jones arose in College Green. On the spot where the portico and dome of the four courts now overlook the Liffey stood in the seventeenth century an ancient building which had once been a convent of Dominican friars, but had since the Reformation been appropriated to the use of the legal profession and bore the name of the King's Inn. Their accommodation had been provided for the Parliament. On the 7th of May, James, dressed in royal robes and wearing a crown, took his seat on the throne in the House of Lords, and ordered the Commons to be summoned to the bar. He then expressed his gratitude to the natives of Ireland for having adhered to his cause when the people of his other kingdoms had deserted him. His resolution to abolish all religious disabilities in all his dominions he declared to be unalterable. He invited the House to take the act of settlement into consideration and to redress the injuries of which the old proprietors of the soil had reason to complain.
he concluded by acknowledging in warm terms his obligations to the King of France. End of Part 7 Recorded by Robert Scott, July the 28th, 2007